Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Praise the Lord. It's good to be here. It's good to be in His presence. Thank you for all being here today. This first Sunday of 2021. Thank you for joining us online. We're glad you're here too. And uh, man, God is so, so good, isn't he? I mean, somebody shout just because God is so good. I love it. And you know, I refuse to just walk like this through life. Oh, woe is me. What's going to happen? We weren't designed for that. I turned on the TV this morning and there's to catch some weather. And of course, there's news on around the weather and you got to put up with that just to get the weather. But uh, I, I, I saw a couple of individuals on their, you know, officials saying, you know, we haven't seen the worst yet. And I thought, you don't know my God. You don't know my God. Because he sees us through any storm. And uh, I want to challenge you today with this idea of perseverance. Perseverance. There's a a few parables, and we're going to get into them in a little bit, but I I want to start out few parables that talk about perseverance, and we're going we're gonna to start out with a couple of them. Uh, not, not more than one today, but uh, I want to I start off by just telling you a poem that I ran across that I liked very much. You guys like poetry? So, two frogs fell into a can of cream, or so I've heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croaked number one. Tis fate, no helps around. Goodbye, my friend, goodbye, sad world. And weeping still, he drowned. But number two of sterner stuff, dog paddled in surprise. The while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at least, he said, or, I, I, or so I've heard he said. It really wouldn't help the world, if one more frog were dead. An hour or two he kicked and swam, not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and kicked and swam and kicked, then hopped out via butter. (laughs) Some of you weren't even listening, you didn't get it. Some of you got it and didn't think it was funny. I love it because it talks about perseverance. And as I have been praying and thinking about 2021 and what God has been saying to us as a church, I keep coming back to this idea of perseverance. Perseverance is the ability to keep doing something in spite of obstacles. That's perseverance. People who persevere show steadfastness in doing something despite how hard it is or how long it takes to reach the goal. And I believe the church must start recognizing the signs of the times if we're going to actually persevere in our faith. And in a sense, we've been in the last days since the early church in the book of Acts, but I actually believe that we are in the last of those last days. Anybody with me? And I say this because of the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. It's like there's nothing really else that has to happen before Jesus comes back except for the church rising up in power and reaching a whole bunch of people before their eternities are sealed. Persevering in our faith, it it was a huge topic within Jesus' teachings. And if you have read through the New Testament, you know that Jesus taught using parables on several occasions. And these parables were short situational stories that painted a mental picture or illustrated the point that he was trying to make. And again, there's several of these parables that he taught that were really about perseverance and more specifically, persevering in different aspects of our faith. And so this morning, I really want to break down one of those parables uh, a bit and identify the aspect uh, or that aspect of faith that Jesus was encouraging us to persevere in as he taught this parable. And the parable is, it's, that I'm going to do today is one of my favorites. It's, it's the parable of the ten virgins uh, that was spoken by Jesus after he rose from the dead. 
He was sitting with his disciples, give you a little uh, picture of of what was going on when he spoke this. He was teaching them about the signs of the times in in chapter 24 of Matthew. He talks about the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation that will come upon the earth. And he talked about how no one would know the day and the hour of his return. And then he speaks this parable. And before I read it this morning, I, I have to tell you how important it is for you to understand ancient Jewish wedding customs and ceremonies. You just can't really understand this parable fully if you view it through wedding ceremonies that we experience today. It kind of, we kind of piece it together a little bit, but we don't really fully understand. And so let me start, before I read the parable, I want to just go through a little bit of the the scenario of what a wedding ceremony looked like in ancient uh, Judea or for the Jews back then during Jesus' time. And so when he was speaking this parable, they knew exactly what he was talking about. It started with a couple. One man, one woman. There was a contract drawn up laying out the conditions and provisions of the marriage or of, of the proposed marriage. And so guy meets girl, a lot of times in ancient Israel, dad even picked the bride for uh, his son, um, which, which seems odd to us, of course, but uh, dad always had his best interests in mind. Any parents in here would like to pick your, the spouse for your kids? <laughs> How many glad you didn't pick the spouse for your kids? Nobody's voting this morning. That's good, because your kids might be watching. But the groom had to promise to support his wife to be... Uh, his wife-to-be, and the bride had to stipulate the contents of, of, of her dowry, which was basically proving her financial status. Then there was this gift paid for by the groom. This is all before they're, they're really um, married, okay? This is before they were even betrothed, and we're going to get into that. There was a gift that was paid by the groom to the bride's family. He, like, gave them stuff, money, materials, maybe six cattle or... Uh, some goats. You know, we were in Botswana. We experienced that. One of our team members um, was continually offered uh, uh, seven, was it seven cows or something um, for her hand in marriage uh, by one of the people that we were ministering to. He, he saw her. He liked her. She was one of the younger ones um, that came along, and he's like, I have seven cows, I think he said, and I have some goats, and um, I'd like to purchase... It wasn't really purchasing the person, okay? So don't see it that way. Some view it that way, but actually, in, in, in uh, ancient Jewish weddings, it actually freed her from her parents' household, and she, it changed her status. And so in other words, she was, the family was given this amount, and then the family could give it back to the bride, and the, bride could, the bride-to-be could, could take care of herself for a while. It released her from their... Uh, financial uh, overseership, I guess you could say in a way, or at least their financial responsibility. Then, there, then that, when that was all done, there came the betrothal, or they, were, they became betrothed, and it's a word that we are familiar with. Uh, and this was somewhat like our modern engagements, but had, it had a little more legal teeth. It, w- it was a time for the couple to set apart and prepare themselves to enter into the covenant of marriage. This betrothal would consist of the couple appearing together under the hopa, or canopy, and they would express their intention of becoming betrothed publicly. It was a ceremony. During this betrothal ceremony, they would exchange items of value, such as rings, and they would share a cup of wine to seal the betrothal vows. It was a lot like our weddings, actually, more like our weddings and our engagements. And after this ceremony, the couple was considered legally betrothed, and this period of betrothal was to last for one year. And the couple was considered married at this point, but they did not live together, and they did not have any sexual relations. That was forbidden. So following the betrothal ceremony, the groom would give the matan. Everybody say matan. Okay? Matan. That's a Hebrew word meaning gift. And this was a bridal gift given to the bride uh, by the groom. It was to remind his bride of his love for her during their days of separation because they would separate for a year. This gift was to remind her that he was thinking of her and that he would return to receive her as his wife. 
During this betrothal period, the groom would focus on preparing a new dwelling place for his bride. Most of the time, it was accomplished by the groom adding a room on to his family's existing home. And the rabbis would have to check to see if the new place was better than the bride's current living conditions. It had to be, or the, or the wedding couldn't happen. Isn't that interesting? You better provide me a better place than what I'm in, or the wedding's not going to happen. And that was done by the rabbis. Also, the groom's father had to declare that the room was ready, or their, their habitat, or their, their dwelling place that they were going to live in, was ready, and that the groom could go ahead and receive his bride. So the bride during this time, during this betrothal period, was to keep herself busy in preparation for the wedding day. Specifically, her wedding garments were to be sewn and prepared. Now I want to point out a little bit of symbolism here because it, this, this, this wedding ceremony in ancient Jewish times is just full of symbolism. And we're going to see this all throughout the parable when I get to it because I haven't even got to the parable yet. The wine that was shared by the couple under their betrothal hopa is a picture of the cup that Jesus shared with his disciples at the Last Supper, instituting communion. I want you to understand something. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. And they had these ceremonies that they, they planned out, this whole elaborate thing that, that played out from, from the time of drawing up contracts to betrothal to that year of separation, the, the betrothal, and then, and then finally the marriage. They had all that time and all these things that they did, but they all point to something eternal for us to look at and say, okay, that is, is really a picture of this. And, and I want you to see that because it, it just opens up the meaning of this parable when we get to it. So they're sharing, the bride and the groom are sharing this, uh, this uh, cup of wine under the hopa, and it starts the betrothal, because then the groom would go away, and he would come back again to get her. Sounds a little bit like the Last Supper, doesn't it? Our bridegroom going away just days later and he's still not back yet but he's coming he's coming also the groom again going away separating himself from his bride to focus on a new dwelling place for them is obviously a picture of Jesus going to prepare a place for us in heaven he used these exact words in John 14 3 and if I go prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also so there's this connection. Are you following me this morning? All of you? Yes. Nod your head, yeah? Say amen. amen. Yeah, I like it when you do that. <laughs> then there's the symbol of the matan, that Hebrew word for gift. It's a bridal gift of love from Jesus to remind those that are betrothed to him, those that are saved, that he is coming back again and he is thinking about us. In the New Testament, the Greek word for gift is charismata. So you have the Hebrew word uh, uh, matan, and then you have charismata in the Greek. And why I bring that up is because in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, we get this idea of charismata, this gift that's given to us by our bridegroom. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believe in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Follow me, church. Could it be that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, left the matan, the bridal gift to his bride, the church, as a promise and reminder that he's coming back and he's thinking about us? And that gift is the Holy Spirit. I think you can make a strong case for that symbolism pretty easily. And as the awaiting bride, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be consecrating ourselves, preparing our holy garments uh, for our upcoming marriage with Christ. Are we keeping our covenant promises and vows in reference to serving him and living for him? This is that time of betrothal. When you accept Christ, 
You become part of his bride, and right now his bride is betrothed. We're living in the age of grace, the, the, the dispensation of grace, if you want to call it. We're living in the church age, the time when people can choose to live for God or reject him. The church is preaching the gospel, the true church of Jesus Christ is preaching the gospel, sharing how one can find salvation through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's people that accept it, and there's people that reject it. This is the age of grace. This is the church age. This is a time to get saved. We're in that time, but that time is coming to a close. Back to ancient Jewish weddings. After the betrothal period, the groom with the new dwelling place prepared and the father giving him permission to go get his bride, sounds something like something else, doesn't it? The father telling Jesus, he's like, can I go get my bride yet? And he's like, just wait. But there will come a time when God says, God the father says, go get her son. The groom would arrive. After he got permission from his father to go get his bride, the groom would arrive at a time that was, was not known. It was to be a surprise. So this betrothal period was a time of anticipation. There was a sense of understanding within the bride because that period was to last around a year, so she kind of understood when it was going to happen, but the exact day and the exact hour was not known. It was the responsibility of the bride and her wedding party or bridal party to always be ready. And then when the, the time had come, the groom would, would come with his entourage, and one of the groomsmen would go out in front and lead the group to the bride as he shouted, Behold, the bridegroom comes. He would shout that. This would be followed by the sounding of a shofar horn. If you don't know what a shofar horn is, it's, a, it's like a gazelle horn that's been boiled out, and it's got, uh, on the end, they, 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 they hollow it out so it's like a mouthpiece to a trumpet. When they blow that thing, it's loud. So they blow that shofar after that was announced. The bridegroom comes. And it's believed that the bridegroom would come during the night to be received by a group of young women that were prepared. They were supposed to be prepared. They were to come out and they were to be the light for him, so to speak. Because it was dark. Light is path to the bride. And the festivities would be marked with a banquet celebration, typically lasting for seven days. This, this wedding thing in ancient Jewish times for the, for, for the Jews, was, was, it was an amazing event. It lasts seven days. A banquet celebration lasting seven days. That's my kind of banquet. Talk about buffeting your body. And this whole thing was the public solemnization of the agreement that they made at the time of their betrothal. And so it had been a year, there was waiting. Uh, historians think that the ceremony itself probably consisted of a recitation of, of simple formula laid out in Genesis 2.23, uh, which was the first union between husband and wife. The groom would wear a ceremonial crown and, the, and, and receive his bride, who would make her entrance at the wedding party fully adorned in embroidered garments and jewelry and riding in a sedan chair. If you don't know what a sedan chair is, it's one of those chairs that's got poles on both sides and they carry the chair, the people carry. It's, it's kind of like what you see the Pope running around in or riding around in. The bride wore a veil as well and it's interesting to think about weddings in, in ancient Jewish times because, you know, I, I've read the story of, of, of Jacob and, and how he wanted to marry uh, uh, Rachel and, and then he ended up with Leah and how did that happen? You ever wonder that story? How did that happen? Well, they had this thick veil that they had to wear. And so Laban, who, who was the father of Leah and Re Rachel, she, he, uh, he tricked Jacob with that veil. So there was this veil that was hiding her beauty, so to speak, the bride. And the bride was accompanied by an honor guard made up of some of the groom's friends. Her entourage also included a musical procession. This was a big deal. This was a wedding ceremony. Wedding ceremonies are big deals, folks. They're big deals. Some of this depict, you can find, it's depicted in Psalms 45, if you want to write that down, and Song of, Psalm, or Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 6 through 11. There's a lot of this that's in there. 
But the groom would declare that the woman, during the marriage ceremony, would declare that the woman was his wife and that he was her husband forever. And he would take the corner of his garment and he'd cover her with it, symbolizing that she was now under his protection and that it was his responsibility to provide for her. Blessings of fruitfulness were then spoken over the couple by family and friends, and, and the bridal couple would, would consummate and seal their union in a bridal chamber and, and and, and I know this is awkward, but physical evidence of the bride's virginity would be produced by an examination of the wedding bed linens to make sure that she was a virgin. And if she was not, the full price for the wedding had to be paid by the bride's father who should have been making sure that she was protected and was still a virgin. And its significance in reference also to, to marriage not only being a contract, but a blood covenant. And, and this is a little stuff, maybe a little bit for free this morning, but again, I, I don't want to be awkward, but it's just the truth. A, a woman has something called a hymen, and there's no medical reason for it whatsoever. Except that there's an issue of blood when sex happens for the first time with her husband. A blood covenant. Is it, isn't it interesting that God even builds that right into a woman's body? That's amazing to me. All of this stuff is significant. And again, I don't want to be awkward with all that this morning, but I, I think it's important that we know some of these things. These wedding ceremonies were considered occasions for great joy. And again, I, I, I just thought... It was so important for you to understand the ceremonies to more fully appreciate the parable that Jesus taught about the ten virgins. So we're going to read it now, and I think it's going to make a lot more sense. Matthew 25, 1. Then the kingdom of God will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And this is a story about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was about to give an a, a illustration of what the kingdom of heaven was like. He said that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to ten virgins whose job it was to carry their lit lamps out and be the light for the bridegroom. The betrothals happens. The bridegroom comes. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And the, the wedding party or the bride's bridesmaids, if you want to put it that way so you understand what I'm talking about, they were supposed to run out with their lamps and light his way to her. That's what we're talking about. Who are these virgins anyway in the story? And they are those who are in the wedding party. They are you and me. They are those within the kingdom of God. And I believe these 10 virgins that are mentioned here are believers. They're all believers. They are those that have accepted the truth of the word of God and decided to make Jesus their savior. How many have made Jesus your savior in here? Amen, Amen right? They are Christians who are living at the time of the rapture, and the time of the rapture is drawing closer. I don't know what's going to be. I don't know when the bridegroom is coming back, but I have to be prepared and ready, just as, just as you do. Matthew 25, 2. Five of them, of these virgins, were foolish, and five of them were wise. Jesus simply adds a couple of descriptive categories to these virgins, wise and foolish. The only real difference defining them as, as, as part of the wise camp or the foolish camp was their ability to recognize that the bridegroom would come at an unexpected time. In the parable, half of them were prepared and had enough oil for their lamps. Half of them were not. And we're going to get to the rest of that in a minute. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. And then Matthew 25, 3, 4 says this, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now, I've already made a couple of statements in reference to lamps giving light, but, and, and we are to be the light for our bridegroom, Jesus, and especially as his return is upon us. We're to be the light in the world, right? I mean, now more than ever. And the lamps described in, in the parable are, are fueled, they're fueled with oil, which is how they would have fueled their lamps back then. It's interesting to note that when oil is mentioned in Scripture, it is often symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Look at your neighbor and say, oil 
is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Okay? I mean, we, we see that, we see that in, in, in Psalms 133. How good and pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the oil being poured over Aaron down, that runs down on his beard and down on his garments. He was, he was soaked in, in this oil. And what they're referring to is when they anointed oil, or, or Aaron for the priesthood. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and they used oil to represent that. We know that, that oil is, is, is very important in the Word of God. It's, it's in so many different parts and different stories. Most often, it's about the Holy Spirit. I already mentioned that the gift, the matan, had been given to us by Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this oil in these lamps is the continued presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. It's the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the filling. And I would go so far as to say that it's our immersion in the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I want to hold that thought, and I'm going to get back to that in a minute, because I want to move on to the parable. But Matthew 25, 5 says this, as the bridegroom was delayed... I don't know if you thought this in, in the year 2020, but did you feel like the, our bridegroom has been a little delayed in coming? I mean, maybe it was, uh, maybe it's just felt like, Jesus, when are you coming back? Is this getting ugly out here? Kind of thing. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became, all the virgins became drowsy and they slept. Can I just say that in the midst of waiting for our bridegroom, for him to return and pull us all out of this mess that the sin-filled world has fallen into, that large portions of the church have become drowsy they have become sleepy. Some are snoring, and some are just out cold. I'm a heavy sleeper. I, I understand heavy sleeping. I mean, I think my wife sometimes has to hit me with a two-by-four to get me out of bed to wake up if it's very early in the morning. It's it, hard to wake me up. And I don't need a lot of sleep, and I think this is one of the reasons, because when I sleep, it's like I have two speeds, on and off. And you know, when you're, when you're out, you're out. Uh, I was in a college, and a bunch of buddies, we were, we were in a band together, and, and it was practice on a Saturday, and I didn't, I didn't get out of bed because I was sleeping so hard. I stayed up too late. They came to my apartment. They grabbed me out of my bed in my boxers, and they threw me out in a snowbank, and I didn't wake up for a while, but I woke up in my underwear in the snowbank. I mean, I'm a heavy sleeper, a very heavy sleeper. But heaven forbid... If I'm asleep spiritually, you know, there, there are portions of the church as a whole that are moving away from the truth of the Bible. Some groups have thrown it out altogether. There are movements to try and make Scripture line up with social and, and, and cultural political correctness. Let's take Scripture and line it up with this. Let's reword it or rethink it or, or twist it so that it fits the popular modern vernacular the political correct way of saying things. These are all signs of the church falling asleep, guys. The prayerless section of the church is the sleeping church. The lazy hold the fort and, and don't reach out, holy huddle portion of the church is the sleeping church. Those within the church who have justified their sinful lifestyles are, and, and not strive for holiness, that, that's, that's a, a, the church that's asleep. They're asleep. Matthew 25, 6. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And you know that in the story, Jesus is talking about the bridegroom coming unexpectedly. The symbolism he's using uh, here can best be explained by, by reading 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, which says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the, so the, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Talking of the rapture. It's a picture of that, this parable. 
Matthew 25, 7 says, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Now, I, I want to make a point that all the virgins, both wise and foolish, they all grew weary. They all became drowsy, the Word of God says. Some of them fell totally asleep, I believe. Some were drowsy from waiting so long. But, but it's, it's important to understand that. Because there's a lot of us who go through dry spells, who go through tired spells. How many have been a little tired? Spiritually. Come on, be honest. Have you gotten tired? I have. Man, Lord, this is hard. This is tough. This is difficult. I'm tired. If you've gone through it in the last few months, if you've lost a loved one, a spouse, I know we have a couple of people in here today who've lost a spouse in the last couple months. That's a hard thing to go through. It tires you. It wears you out. This family right here who lost Mighty Maddie. It's tiring. It's weared out. You're wore out, I'm sure. It's hard. We get weary and we get drowsy. I want you to know, I think it's so important that God said they all became that way. So that we don't have to heap our, a bunch of shame on ourselves for being tired. It's like God saying, I understand how tired you are. But they got up and they trimmed their lamps. All of them did. They got up and trimmed their lamps. What does it mean to trim a lamp? Well, I, I know this from, from the Minnesota blizzards that I lived through when I was a kid. The power would go out sometimes for days, and the only light we would have is maybe some candles or flashlights that didn't last. And the oil lamps we had, were, they were the best. Those things would put out light like no other. And they would, they, they would give most of our light in the house. We had several of them. And they had wicks on them and that, that had to be cared for. Part of that care involved trimming the wick, which drew the oil up from the storage reservoir so that the flame would be clean and bright. A poorly trimmed wick, or one that you just let kept burning and burning and you never trimmed it, uh, it created a flame which was more dim, and the lamps would give off smoke when they, uh, at that time. They, they needed, when they started smoking, that was time to cut them off, raise them up a little bit, cut them off, and then you get this nice, bright, clear light. All of these virgins, the wise and the foolish, they got up when they heard the sound and they trimmed their lamps. I mean, trimming our wicks could be compared to caring for and taking personal responsibility of our own faith. Your faith walk with Jesus doesn't just happen, church. Like other relationships, there has to, there has to be a constant nurturing and growth. It, 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 just, just, you have to work at it. You got to continue in it. And the relationship that we have with Christ is, it's, it's no different. You got to work at it. The stronger it is, the deeper it is, it, it, it's, it provides that, that drawing up from the reservoir of his Holy Spirit to help our light shine bright and clear. So as you trim the wick of your faith, making sure you're, you're sharp, that you're taken care of, what, what, what are you talking about, Pastor Barry? I'm talking about having a prayer life, having a devotional life, having a time where you can get before the Lord and worship every single day, making him number one in your life, putting him at the center of your life. You have a real relationship with him. Can I just say something very, uh, maybe it's a little in your face. I hope it's not to you, but it could be a little in your face. If, if all you do is go to church on Sundays, if that's the extent of your relationship with Jesus, I'm glad you're here. But that's not a relationship with Jesus. Going to church is just part of your relationship with Jesus. You need that communication every single day. You need to spend time with them. I'm, I'm, I'm pausing for a second because uh, I want to make sure God really wants me to say this. <laughs> I think he does. When we lead worship up here and look out and people don't enter in or just stand there, the worship team talks about that sometimes. It's hard because it feels like you're pulling you know, a load to try to get people to worship sometimes. And I understand people can worship in their hearts and they can stand there like this and be really worshipful. Maybe. At least I believe they can be. 
Maybe. Devin, you know what I'm talking about. It's like pulling teeth sometimes. I think, and this is what I was questioning whether I should say or not, that's a sign that people aren't worshiping on their own. That's a sign of lack of relationship with Christ. That's a sign of, not a, of a wick that's not been trimmed very well. Is, is that convicting? Because if you're on fire for God, you're hot for him, your light's bright and burning bright and clear because your wick is trimmed, guess what? You take advantage of every opportunity you have to worship him and be in his presence. And you don't go, oh, here we go. Are we about done singing yet? Because I'm not much of a singer. Well, you ain't going to like heaven because there's going to be a lot of singing up there. And God don't care if your voice is bad. Here, make a joyful noise. Scott does it. You know, I sit here and I can hear him. Or maybe that was your brother. I don't know. Maybe it was Bobby. I don't know. Don't do that. But we're supposed to make this joyful noise. We ought to be, I mean, man, when, when, when that first note hits and it doesn't matter if, if we're having even problems up here because technical things happen. When that first note hits, you ought to be shouting the ceiling off this place because our God is worthy of that. Amen. It shouldn't be pulling teeth. You should be so on fire for him because your relationship is so hot with him that you've spent so much time with him, that this is just an overflow in church. This isn't the place where you have to come to to go to the well. You've already been to the well, and now you get to join in with other people who've been at the well, and you can praise God together. See, that's a big difference. That's a big difference than what usually happens. Because most of the church gets beat up, beat up, beat up, and they don't spend the time that they should trimming their wicks, if you will, sharpening their faith, and then church becomes life support. Church isn't supposed to be life support. Now, we might have some people who come in once in a while who need life support, and we will help them. But you ought to be one of those helping them, not one of those who needs life support. You understand what I'm saying? There's enough smoky, dim-lit Christians. Our goal should be that we aren't one of them. Matthew 25, 8 through 9. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and you, Go rather to the dealers and buy, buy it for yourselves. I thought about this a lot because there's symbolism here. And I don't want to go too far with it. But this just looks to me like unprepared Christians, don't have their wicks trimmed, who want to walk on the fence, ignore the personal responsibility they have to stay strong in Christ, and ride the shirt tails of those that are prepared and, and, and don't walk... Uh, who don't walk the fence and have the persistent uh, but who have been persistent in keeping their relationship with Christ you got five wise ones doing everything right or at least most things right and you got five foolish ones and when the time comes they're like hey hey give us some of what you got and they're like um there won't be enough for us go get your own and it's like a picture of you're out of time at that point getting back to the signs of the times we're coming to a place where we're out of time church well, I'll serve God next year if there isn't a pandemic. Or I'll do this next year. Or I'll get right with him next year. Or I'll get on fire with him then. Is anybody listening to me today? Yes. I hope I'm making sense. You cannot ride the shirt tails of anybody else. Your faith is your faith. I mean, nobody can get you there but you. It's your choice. You can't ride on grandma or grandpa's faith or your mom and dad's relationship with Christ. Oh, my mom loved the Lord. Well, good for her, do you? I mean, that's what it comes to. It's your decision, and you have to make it. And if you're a teenager in here or you're even younger, maybe than that, I, it's your decision. You can't, you can't just ride on your parents' shirt tail. 
You have to make that choice yourself. You can't ride on your spouse's shirt tail or coattail or however you want to say it. Matthew 25, 10 through 11. And while they were going to buy, because the foolish ones said, okay, we got to go get some quick. The bridegroom came. And those who were ready with or those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other versions came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. See, I, I believe that, that the foolish virgins here represent those that missed the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb that's talked about in Revelations 19, 7 through 9. Let me read that. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Sounds just like the story, don't it? It was, granted her to it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let me put it this way for us. Blessed are those who make the rapture who when that trumpet sounds and the voice of the archangel shouts and presumably uh, you're going to shout, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. You know, the, the shofar goes, right? Or however that sounds. That was my shofar uh, impersonation there. Yeah. It's going to be loud. If I had one, I could play it. I'm telling you what. And then Jesus comes back, and those that go up with him, those are the ones that are invited to the marriage feast. What's going to happen to those that, that miss it? They're going to remain here on the earth during the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen. It'll begin to unfold while the, while the true bride of Christ, the prepared virgins of this parable, find themselves in a glorious, blessed reunion with those faithful loved ones who died previous to the bridegroom's arrival. This is going to be the beam of judgment, it's called. Uh, the awards will be given out. A great feast will be laid before us, not just a seven-day banquet, but a seven-year banquet. There's so much symbolism here, guys. I, you got to read it and just study it and ask God to show you things because it's amazing. We'll experience joy unimaginable that day. And I am so looking forward to it. I miss Brandon Boyd, but I'm going to see him on that day. I miss Dave Glasscock or so many others that have gone before us, Bob Bash. And I miss Lowell Walker already. I miss these people. They're part of our family. I miss my dad. I miss my father-in-law. And I know you have people that you love that you miss, and you're going to get to be with them that day. This is going to be an amazing reunion, an absolutely awesome time. And we're all going to be together forever. It's going to be great. And it's not just a story, it's true. Again, these foolish virgins will say, Lord, Lord, let us in. Let us in. Matthew 25, 12 says this, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Let me make a point. All 10 virgins in the story were a part of the wedding party. They were all in the church. They were all a part of the kingdom of God. Half of them were foolish. Half of them were wise. The ones that got to come in were the ones that were prepared. Those that knew the truth but decided to remain unprepared, they're going to cry out to God. But the age of grace that we now live in will be over. That's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation, church. It's not something to put off. 
and neither is being prepared as a born-again Christian. And, and there's just no getting around this. The, the truth of this, it, you just have to accept it because it's the Bible. There will be those that have heard the truth, the gospel truth, they've accepted it, but will miss the bridegroom's coming. Jesus finishes the parable with this warning. Matthew 25, 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Just like in the parable. And this is the real message of this parable. There must be a readiness within his bride, an awareness that he can come unexpectedly in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And large portions of his church will be completely unprepared for his arrival, and they are going to miss him. In the parable, the pre uh, preparedness, again, revolves around this thing called oil, because the prepared ones had enough oil. And specifically, the individual's uh, personal reserve of that oil. If they had plenty of oil, they were prepared and they were wise. If they were low or out of oil, they were considered unprepared and were foolish. And I, I mentioned last week in, that this year we're going to be emphasizing the Holy Spirit a lot and, and his role in our lives. And of all the things that Jesus could have used to speak to us about preparedness, I believe he's saying to us in this parable that your level of preparedness can be measured by how much influence that you've allowed the Holy Spirit to have in your life. Write that down and take it to the bank. How much influence do you let the Holy Spirit have in your life? I mean, I can say it this way. Have you checked your oil lately? Are you a quart low? You see, the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is the gift. He's the matan that our bridegroom has left us with to remind us that he's coming back and that we had better be prepared. This parable, which I think we can categorize as a persevering parable because it speaks about perseverance, and that's exactly what we must do with the Holy Spirit. We must keep our oil level full. We need to persevere, work at it, to keep our oil level full. That's being prepared. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul challenges us here to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you, if you look at the original Greek here, the words be filled carry with them the idea of an ongoing filling. It's not a one-time thing. It doesn't just happen at salvation and then it's over. It doesn't just happen when you're baptized into the Holy Spirit or immersed in the Holy Spirit and then it's over. It doesn't just happen one time. A good way to think about this verse is to say, be in a constant state of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Every day, all the time, walking in his presence, being filled all the time. Be being filled. That would be the exact words if you were to take them in the Greek. Be being filled. This is having your lamps full of oil, church. The parable is clear. We need that filling. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit at that moment when the voice of the archangel presumably again shouts, behold, the bridegroom comes. And the sky is cracked open with the eternal blast from that trumpet in heaven. Don't miss this. We must persevere even though we grow weary in this sin-filled world with all of the social unrest and all the decay of morals and political power grabbing that goes on. I know many of you are tired, but don't run out of oil. Get those reserves filled up because the time is drawing near. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, the days of second chances are going to be over. We must persevere in the very presence of the Holy Spirit. Walk in his presence. We must remain in him. We are people of his presence. Freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. Powerful in our witness. Holy in our walks with God. Walking and living in the Holy Spirit power. That Holy Spirit power every single day. We could give up and go down like that first frog, right? Well, goodbye, world. It's just, this is too much for me. 
I'm going down. Or we can get to kicking. And it's easy to get distracted by all the things that are going on around us to, to almost watch from the sidelines and become entrenched in the misery of it all. It's depressing to watch the news. The world seems hopeless. But church, it's time to do some kicking. We need to persevere in the presence of the Holy Spirit and stay in that presence. And I, I don't think I have to preach a sermon on how to do that because I think you all know how to do that. It's just time to do it. You know how to get alone with God. You know how to talk to Him. You know how to walk in the goodness that He offers. You know how to live holy lives. You know how to worship. You know how to pray. You know how to open your Bible and read it. If you want a, a, a resolution for 2021, let this be it. Let me walk in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me persevere in walking in the Holy Spirit and not grow faint in doing so. Let's pray. Father, today we, we love you. We love your word. And Lord, we want to be a part of that marriage supper of the Lamb. We want to be a part of that great reunion in the sky. God, move on our hearts to be prepared, to persevere in the presence of the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, and to walk in that presence daily, to not get so distracted by the things of this world that we, we forget whose we are, who purchased us, who died for us, who paid for us in full. God, we give you our hearts today and we say, be our Savior, be our Lord. I want to live for you. But God, even beyond that, fill us with your Holy Spirit right now. And if you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, would you just lift both hands right now with your head still bowed? Just lift both hands. There shouldn't be one person in here that, that doesn't have both hands raised because we all need to be filled with the Holy Spirit every single day. Fill us, God, with your Holy Spirit. We give you our lives. We say take the controls, use us, guide us, make us, mold us. We want to be like putty in your hands that you are shaping to whatever you want to be. We've died to self, and God, we live for you. We know you're coming back soon. We're like the, the, the bride waiting for the bridegroom. We know the time will come unexpectedly. Let us be prepared in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.